the tremendous ladies that God has blessed this church with. Uh, man, we, we take our hat off to you, and we're going to let your family let you know how special you are today. But we're going to go back to the book of Revelation and let God know how special we think his book is. So, if you didn't get a study sheet when you came in, why don't you lift your hand right now, and you folks who are guests, again, we want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us, and perhaps maybe you came because your mother goes here, and man, we're just absolutely thrilled you could join with us in this study that we've been into now for 88 weeks in the book of Revelation, and we've made our way now to Revelation chapter 14, and before we get into Revelation chapter 14, I think it is important to, because of our, our guests, and just so that we can all make sure that we've got our minds totally dialed into everything that we're going to be hearing today. But I, I want to begin this morning by identifying the, the usage of some key words that we're going to be using throughout the, this message. Now, for folks that have been here for the last 88 weeks, you know these words very well. In fact, I wish we had the time for you to just stand and, and tell some of the folks that are not familiar with these terms just what they mean. But the first thing that you do need to understand in order to understand where we're going this morning is this term, the church age. You need to understand that God has always, listen, he has always had a plan. History is really nothing more than his story. It is the unfolding of the plan of God, and God's plan, as you begin to open the Bible, revolves around, around a very special group of people. They are the Jews that comprise the nation of Israel. And all through the Old Testament, God is, is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he is pointing to the fact that one day, because man has fallen through Adam's sin, and we've all followed suit, that there would come one who would be the promised Messiah, the king, the ruler over the nation of Israel. And all the way through the Old Testament, it's pointing to that. We open the New Testament in the Gospels, and what it is is the fulfillment of that promise of the Old Testament. And what we find in the New Testament, however, is though he came unto his own to be the ruler of the Jews over the nation of Israel, his own received him not. And by the time you find your way into the middle of the book of Acts, what you find is that God is making a very, very distinct and a very, very important transition. God is moving from dealing specifically with the Jews to where he now is going to be dealing specifically with the Gentiles. You see that God's making a transition from God working specifically with the nation of Israel to now God working with something that is called the church. Now listen, we are now presently living in what the Bible would describe as the church age. God is now fulfilling his plan for the earth and the universe and, and your life. He is fulfilling that purpose through the church. So that's the church age. Now the church age is going to continue until the next word on your sheet, the rapture. The thing that is going to end the church age is an event that the Bible describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 an event that we call the, the rapture, what, what it is, is all of the people that are on this planet that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, they have come into a relationship with the God of the universe through His Son that was manifest on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and all of the people who have done what the Bible says and have turned from their sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ and have embraced Him as their only means to God, 
all of those people, the Bible says, are going to be removed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. An event that is just going to absolutely rock the world. That's the rapture, the rapture of the church. And that is going to usher in uh, the next word on your sheet, the tribulation period. Now, you remember me saying just a second ago that God's plan was to deal specifically with the nation of Israel. And in the book of Daniel, God spells out a very key prophecy for the nation of Israel. And what he says is that there is going to be, before Jesus Christ comes and sets up his millennial kingdom where he rules and reigns on this earth, there is going to be a period of 70 segments of seven years or 70 weeks of years. And what we see as we work our way through the Old Testament, now listen, is 69 of those segments of years or 69 of those weeks of years clicked off. And at that point, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah and we entered into this huge parenthesis. That parenthesis is called, tell them folks, it's the church age. It's a 2,000 year parenthesis. But now listen, there is still one week of years. There's still one segment of seven years that is left to fulfill God's prophecy to the nation of Israel. And after that seven years, Jesus Christ will in fact come back to this earth. That seven year period is what we call the tribulation period. Okay, so those are the terms that you need to understand. The church age, we're living in right now. The rapture, what we're expecting at any moment. And the tribulation is what is going to begin to take place after the rapture unfolds. Now, let me just show you how those terms fit into our study of the book of Revelation. This will be real quick. First of all, the church age is what we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches. And one of the things that you begin to note as you place those chapters into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation is that the, those seven letters represent and actually outline for us seven periods of church history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off and take us all the way up to the rapture. Now, the thing you need to understand this morning is that we are presently living right now in the church age, but in a very specific time in the church age. We are living in the passage in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. That period that is outlined through the letter to the Laodiceans. It is the seventh and final period of church history that we are presently living in right now. Then, right after that letter concludes in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 22, the very next verse is where you find the rapture. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, all of the components of the description of the rapture that we were talking about from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 are found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Heaven opens, John, who is a picture of the church, hears a trumpet, there is a voice, and he is caught up into the third heaven. And then from that point, chapter 4 and 5 deals with what takes place up in heaven after the rapture of the church. Then when we come to chapter 6, it describes the events that are on the earth after the rapture of the church and that's the tribulation period described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 and in those chapters what our Lord does is he brings us four times through the tribulation period 
And when we came to Revelation chapter 12, we entered into the third time that God was bringing us through that seven-year period of tribulation on this planet. And that third time is going to take us all the way through chapter 14, and that's where we are in our study right now. Last week, we began looking at the first five verses of chapter 14, so make sure that you're there. We've been looking at this group of people that are called the 144,000. Now, we, we saw the, the 144,000 back in chapter 7. In fact, we spent quite a bit of time there last week. But now listen, between chapter 7 in the book of Revelation and chapter 14, the 144,000 have had a major change in location. There's been a location change. In chapter 7, as we see the description of the 144,000, they're on the earth. When we see them in Revelation chapter 14, they're in heaven. And you'll notice that John says in verse 1, look at it, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an 144,000. And of course, the lamb there is none other than who? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to as the Lamb in the book of Revelation some 28 times in this book. And the 144,000 that he mentions here in verse 1 are the same 144,000 which were very specifically identified back in chapter 7 as 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The 144,000 are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And of course, 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. So, they are 144,000 literal, physical Jews. They are not Gentiles. There's not a Gentile in the bunch. They are Jews, 144,000 of them who will be miraculously converted to Christ sometime at the beginning of the tribulation period. And John clarifies that for us in chapter 14 because through the description that he's going to be giving here of this 144,000, if all we had was this chapter, and without some of the specific things that he uses to identify them, we might have the idea that this group of 144,000 are some sort of angelic beings or some kind of spirit beings. And so John clarifies that for us right here in chapter 14 yeah, at the end of verse 3. Look at it. This, this 144,000, John says, were redeemed from the earth. And look down at the last sentence of verse 4. These, John says, that's the 144,000, were redeemed from among men. So they are flesh and blood human beings who are all from the 12 tribes of the children of Israel who at the beginning of the tribulation will be redeemed or converted to Christ as we saw last week according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8 much the same way the apostle Paul was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus these people will have the Lord Jesus Christ actually appear to them after we have gone and he will specifically give them the gospel in the same way that he did with the Apostle Paul. And upon their conversion, this group of 144,000 will be sealed. 
Now, turn back to Revelation chapter 7 for just a second. Let me make sure that you've got all of the pieces here. Revelation chapter 7, and of course, the time frame here in chapter 7 is the beginning of the tribulation. Because you can see in, in verse 1, the four angels that are standing on the four corners of the earth are still holding the wind of God's judgment. You see that in verse 1? God's judgment at this point hasn't yet started to blow upon the earth, or as he says, nor the sea, nor any tree at the end of the verse. And verse 2 and 3 lets you know that before God would allow these four angels to unleash his judgment, God lets us know here that there's one major item of business that he wants to take care of, and that's the conversion of the 144,000. And upon their conversion, God contracts the angel that ascends out of the east to take what verse 2 calls the seal of the living God, and he uses that seal to be what the end of verse 3 calls that which marks the servants of our God. And that's another term that's describing this 144,000. So they are sealed with the seal of the living God to be the servants of our God. And that seal is placed in their forehead. Again, verse 4 tells us, that the number of which are sealed are in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And these hundred and forty-four thousand become, as verse 3 says, the servants of our God in the tribulation period, and they will be used of God to evangelize literally every part of the world. That's why they are the servants of our God. They are carrying out his eternal purpose, and that is to reach the world. And once this group of people is sealed, they go into literally every part of the world. And hold your place here in chapter 7 for just a second, and go back to chapter 14 or whatever. I mean, we're so close, you don't probably need to even hold it. Now, we've already seen in chapter 13 that there are countless multitudes in the tribulation period who bow to worship the Antichrist and in so doing they will receive his mark in their forehead or on their hand but listen there will also be countless multitudes in the tribulation period who will respond to the gospel that is being preached by this 144,000 servants of our God Look at the last sentence again in verse 4 of chapter 14. Here it is again. These 144,000 were redeemed from among men being the, what's the next word? The first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. In other words, they are the first ones to be redeemed during the tribulation period. But there's going to be an incredible harvest to follow once the first fruits come in. In fact, now go back to Revelation chapter 7 again. Because verse 9 says that the harvest that is going to follow this 144,000 who will respond because of the witness of these servants of God, look at it in verse 9. It says that they will be those from every single nation, kindred, people, and tongue. 
And I want to make sure that you're, you're hearing that. There will be countless multitudes who will be saved during the tribulation period. It will begin with the conversion and the sealing of the 144,000, and then through their witness as the servants of God, there are going to be thousands and thousands of other Jews who will have their eyes open to who the true Messiah really is, along with millions and millions of Gentiles from every single part of the globe. Folks, it's going to be, without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest revival that has ever taken place on this planet in the midst of the most horrendous time that has ever taken place on this planet. Someone says, well, you know, I, I, man, I guess I'm confused on this thing because I thought that after the rapture, that there wasn't going to be any second chances. Man, I've heard that all of my life. That's why there's such an urgency to respond to the message of the gospel because there's not going to be any second chances. Don't get confused. Listen, there will be no second chances. There will be no second chances. You say, well, I don't get it. Okay, there's going to be the greatest revival that's ever hit the planet. There's going to be millions and millions of people who are going to be saved, and yet nobody's getting a second chance. I don't get it. Okay, now check it out. No second chances. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, we don't have time to go there right now. You can just jot this down. You can look at it later. L let me just tell you very briefly what it says. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what it says is that during the church age, during this period we're living in right now, if you have the opportunity to be presented with the truth of the gospel, and now listen, you're going to be presented with the truth of the gospel in this room today, okay? If you have the opportunity to be presented with the truth of the gospel, and you reject that because you have pleasure in unrighteousness, in other words, you don't want this coming to God thing to screw your life up because you're having a big time. If you'll reject Christ after being presented with the truth of the gospel, what God says is during the tribulation period, once the rapture has taken place, what the Bible says, it's not my opinion, okay? What the Bible says is that you will believe the lie of the Antichrist. And you will take his mark, which will seal your destiny for all eternity. Once you've taken that mark, that's it. And the Bible says that God will make sure that you take that mark. Because you lied to yourself when you were presented with his truth. And God's going to give you exactly what you've asked for. He's going to give you a lie on that day when it really counts. Because you see, today it really counts to him that you respond to his gospel and the Bible says that once you've rejected that because you don't want him messing up your life what it says is that at that time God will send you strong delusion so that you will believe the lie of the Antichrist you will bow you will worship him you'll take his mark and that'll be it and, and I wanted to, to clarify that because I 
I, I hear from just uh, listening to us talk about the book of Revelation, I know there's still quite a bit of confusion about that. Will people be saved during the tribulation period? And if so, how, who, who is going to be saved? And, and if there are people going to be saved, how is it going to happen? And the answer is yes. There will be countless multitudes who are going to be saved, but it is only going to be, listen now, it's only going to be the people who have never had the opportunity of having somebody present to them the message of the gospel, which is simply that Jesus died and was buried and rose again for your sins. Once you've heard that message, that's it. But you see, this morning there is literally billions of people on this planet who have never heard. Now, it, it, it goes against the grain of our thinking because we live in America. And I mean, you can't hardly get past, you know, three stations before you hear somebody using terminology and you turn on the radio and, and you're, you're hearing all of that. But now, listen, there are at least three billion people who have never had the opportunity of ever having someone give them the gospel. A lot of people that go to church, even in this area, they go to church every single Sunday, but they've never actually had somebody articulate the gospel to them. Once you've heard the gospel, there's no second chance. But if you've never been presented with the truth of the gospel, then you have the opportunity to be saved and you will, it's again, be nobody in this room. But there will be multitudes, millions, even billions of people who will come under the, the testimony and the witness of the 144,000 who are going to be, and this is on your study sheet, there are going to be 144,000 invincible Apostle Pauls that are roaming the earth, evangelizing everywhere they go. Now, go back to Revelation 14 if you're still in chapter 7. And that's who this 144,000 is in verse 1 who are seen standing with the Lamb. And I'm wanting you to see the, the change in location from where they were in chapter 7. Now John says in verse 1 that when he saw them, they were on the Mount Zion. They were on, not, they were not on Mount Zion. They were on the Mount Zion. Now there's something you need to understand here, and that is that there is both an earthly Mount Zion and there is a heavenly Mount Zion. One is the earthly Jerusalem located on this planet in Palestine. The other, it's time to turn your sheet if you're asleep. And the other one is the heavenly Zion or the heavenly Jerusalem that's located straight above our heads this morning where the Bible says it is on the sides of the north. Okay, this is the Mount Zion, as John calls it here in verse 1, that Paul referred to back in the book of Hebrews. And let me ask you to turn back just a few pages to your left. Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 22. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. Check it out now. The heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. You see, this is the 
Mount Zion, the true Mount Zion, of which the earthly Zion is just a figure. You see, because we're human beings, what we think is that the real Mount Zion is over there on the other side of the earth in Palestine, and the figure is up in heaven. It's exactly the opposite. The true is sitting up in heaven. The figure is on the other side of this earth in Palestine this morning. Turn back to Psalm 48 for just a second. <clears throat> Psalm 48. The psalmist tells us more about the heavenly city of the living God. In Psalm 48, verse 1, many of you sing this little chorus. The psalmist says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And if you check out Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, what you find out is that the sides of the north are located far beyond the sun, the moon, and the stars of this galaxy or any galaxy that any lost scientist knows anything about this morning. It's located about 150 million light years above our heads on the sides of the north. It's the place in Isaiah 14 and verse 13 where it says that Lucifer wanted to ascend and park his throne so that he could be worshipped like the Most High. And you see, that's the place that John is referring to back in Revelation chapter 14. So why don't you go there again. And when John sees the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1, at a period of time right before the end of the tribulation period, just before the second coming of Christ, that's where they are. They are in the heavenly Zion, in the presence of the Lamb and the Father. And you'll notice at the beginning of verse 3 that they are before the throne and before the four beasts, which Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 says, are on the four sides of the throne. And verse 3 goes on and says, And before the elders, which we saw in chapter 4 and verse 4, are around the throne. So here are the 144,000 at a time just before the second coming of Christ. They are in the heavenly Zion before the throne of the Lamb and his father. So hopefully that'll help you to get your bearings about who these 144,000 actually are and where they are in the context of chapter 14. But from that point here in the book of Revelation down through verse 5, the, the Spirit of God inspires John to, to let us in on some beautiful truths that relate to this group of people that are called the 144,000. Now, like I told you last week, you, there are some pitfalls that you've got to watch out for when it comes to this group, this 144,000. But one of the biggest pitfalls that people make when it comes to this group is trying to read themselves or try to read their religious group into that number. And as I mentioned last week, that's 
what the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. It's what the Worldwide Church of God has done. It's what the Seventh-day Adventists have done. It's what the Mormons have done. And folks, listen, it is a grave error. It is a damnable error. You, you try to make yourself in that number of the 144,000, and you will not receive the salvation that God is wanting you to receive in the church age. Because there's something different. They're a different group of people. They're, they're in a different dispensation to begin with. They don't have anything whatsoever to do with the, the church or the church age. And, and what's more, like we've already seen this morning, there won't be a single one of that group, not even one of them, not one of the 144,000 who is going to be a Gentile. And if you look at the groups of people that are trying to become this 144,000, what you'll find is every single one of them is made up of nothing but Gentiles. Okay, now, now we hear an awful lot about that major pitfall. And again, the reason we hear about it is because there are so many religions and so many American cults that try to read themselves into that number. So we hear a lot about that. But I think there's also another major pitfall when it comes to this 144,000, and you don't ever hear anybody talk about this one. And that's the pitfall of those of us in the church age so distancing ourselves from the 144,000 that we never learn anything practical from this group of people to apply to our lives. We never look at them and try to apply from their example things that, man, the, this group of people is an incredible group of people. We can learn a whole lot from this group. Okay, now listen. Even though we're not the 144,000, even though the mission that God has for us to accomplish is in a totally different dispensation than the one that they're in, the characteristics of the 144,000 that John lays out here in the first five verses of chapter 14 that will be true of these true servants of God in the tribulation period, those characteristics that we see in these verses are so similar to the characteristics that God says are to be true of us as his servants in the church age, it would do us well to look at this group of people and the example they set and see if we can't learn some things to apply to our lives. And so what we're going to do this morning, and it'll take us next Sunday as well, is I want us to begin to identify and, and understand these characteristics that are true of the 144,000, and yet at the same time I want us to see how these truths serve as great reminders to those of us living in the church age. And, and let's see how these things apply to our lives. Now the first characteristic that I want you to see from these 144,000 servants of our God in the tribulation that I think that we can learn from as the servants of God in the church age is that there is visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and his father. There is visible evidence of their identification with the lamb and his father. And we see this first of all in the seal of the 144,000 servants of God. The seal. Now you remember that we just saw just a few minutes ago in chapter 7 that upon the, the conversion of the 144,000 that they each received a seal in their foreheads, a seal that was called the seal of the, what? Of the living God. 
And here in verse 1 of chapter 14, John lets us know exactly what that seal is that's in their foreheads. John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, here it is, having his father's name written in their foreheads. That's what this seal is that he was talking about back in chapter 7. It's the lamb's father's name. It's the name of, what, Jehovah that's written on their foreheads. And the name Jehovah means the existing one or the living one, the living God. That's why back in Revelation 7, it, in verse 2, it's called the seal of the living God. It's the seal of Jehovah written in their foreheads. But check it out. God through the angel which ascends out of the east, chapter 7, writes his own name on the forehead of every single one of the 144,000. And I showed you last week that this seal represents at least three things from God's perspective. Make sure you got it. Number one, the 144,000 are sealed to mark God's personal possession. They are sealed to mark God's personal possession possession God says now listen understand these are mine and God says because I know that Satan through the person of the Antichrist is going to mark his name on the foreheads of his followers in the tribulation period God says I don't want there to be any doubt in anybody's mind about this hundred and forty four thousand so I'm going to mark them with my own name right smack dab in the middle of their foreheads because these are mine these are my personal possession. Then secondly, we saw that the 144,000 are sealed to guarantee God's personal protection. They are sealed to guarantee God's personal protect, uh, protection. Now, as we've seen all the way through the last eight chapters, as soon as we got to Revelation chapter 6, we began to see that there is going to be, folks, some horrendous things that are going to be taking on this planet during the tribulation period. What we saw beginning back in chapter 6 is there's going to be all kinds of wars. There's going to be all kinds of violence. There's going to be all kinds of murderings. People are going to be starving to death. People are going to be dying from all kinds of pestilences. There's going to be all kinds of earthquakes. The Bible says that are literally going to rock the world. It is going to absolutely even move mountains and islands out of their places, the Bible says. There will be meteorites that will be colliding with the earth. Chapter 9 says that the bottomless pit is going to open, which is located at the center of the earth, and it's going to open up, and out of the smoke when it opens up, demonic scorpion locust. It's going to be like, like no science fiction movie you ever saw, because it is going to be real. And out of the smoke, demonic scorpion locusts are going to come flying out onto the earth. And the Bible says that they will sting people with a sting. And the sting lasts for five solid months. And the sting is going to be so excruciating that people are literally going to be trying to kill themselves. But what the Bible says is they will not be able to do it. They're going to try to kill themselves and they can't die. All of these things are going to be taking place during the tribulation period, but check it out. Now, one of those things, not one of them, is going to do one thing to the 144,000. Because that seal in their forehead guarantees the personal 
protection of God. And we saw that in chapter 9. Then thirdly, the 144,000 are sealed to fulfill God's personal purpose. To fulfill God's personal purpose. And of course that purpose is to get the gospel to every creature. And in the 144,000, after 6,000 years of human history of trying to find a group of people that would just do what he asked them to do and fulfill that purpose, God's finally going to find a group of people that will fulfill his commission. And they're sealed as his servants to carry his message to the ends of the earth during the tribulation period. And listen, we can learn from all of those, those things that, we, that are true about that, that seal in, in, in the lives of these 144,000. But the key thing that I'm wanting you, uh, you to see this morning is that the, the seal that God uses to seal the 144,000 provides visible evidence to everyone in the tribulation period from the Antichrist to the false prophet to anyone and everyone else it's going to be the visible evidence to everyone in the tribulation period that they are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father himself and they're going to be identified and it's going to be made visible because it's going to be written all over them and here's what I'm wanting you to see this morning if you are truly if you are truly a genuine servant of God in the church age now listen if you have really been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb and you've entered into a personal relationship with God the Father through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and listen just like there will be in the hundred and forty four thousand there will be visible evidence in the church age that you are identified with the Lamb and his Father there will be visible evidence if you're really a child of God and it won't be written in your forehead but listen anywhere you slice the New Testament what it tells you is that it's going to be written all over your life and I want you to turn back with me if you would to the book of 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 And as you're turning, I want to ask those of you that think that you're saved this morning, and listen, the purpose of this message is not to get anybody that's truly a child of God to doubt whether or not you are. But I'm just telling you, Frank mentioned this last Sunday night. Here we are talking about the last days, week after week after week. And one of the concerns and burdens we have is that there's people that sit and listen to this stuff every single week, thinking you're all right, and you ain't. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, what it tells us here is that once we have been identified with Christ as our Savior, we become living, the word he uses here is epistles, known and read of all men. And Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain that we're epistles, look at it in the middle of verse, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, you know what he's trying to get us to see? There's a seal that we have. You know what it is? It's the seal of the spirit according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. And you know what the seal is? It's the seal 
The same seal that the 144,000, it's just not going to be marked in ink on your forehead. But he says it's the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. In other words, what he's saying here in verses 2 and 3 is once we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, our identification with him is known to all men. Not because he writes something with ink on our forehead or anywhere else, but the Spirit of the, the living God moves in and changes our hearts. And listen, you can't get away from it. The evidence of a changed heart is a changed what? It's a changed life. And it's visible. It's visible right now. Not only to God, but to the devil and to the principalities and powers. It's visible to your family. It's visible to your friends. It's visible to your co-workers. It's visible to your neighbor, neighbor and anybody else who spends any amount of time with you. It's, it's visible. Because she, the, the point is, those of us who are the servants of our God in the church age, we also have a seal. We, we looked at this last week. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says that it is the seal of the Holy Spirit. And what Ephesians chapter 1 says is that when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, at that very second, the Spirit of God seals you. What happens to you when you are born again, when you are saved, when you call upon the name of the Lord, is that you are placed in Christ, and at the same time you're being placed in Christ, Christ is being placed in you, and once that has happened, what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 is that you are then sealed with the Spirit of the living God. And what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 is that the evidence of that sealing is going to be made visible to all men because it's written all over your life. Now listen. If it isn't written on your life, a very legitimate question to ask yourself is, have I really been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God? Have I received the seal that God uses to mark His true servants in this age? And if there's no visible evidence, what God says is you ain't been sealed. I'm taking some allergy uh, medicine and I'm about to croak. If somebody in the back, one of the ushers, Mark, if you're still in the room, if somebody could get me just a sip of water, we might be able to make it through this thing. I know some of you don't want me to make it through this thing. But, but listen, if it isn't written on your life, you ought to do some major, major introspection this morning. Because, you, you see, it's just, it's just real hard to imagine how it could be that the holy God that was powerful enough to 
create the universe and everything that's in existence, it's just real hard to imagine how the holy, omnipotent God of the universe could move into a person's life and make them a new creature in Christ. Bam! He comes inside and he does that work and he places his Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing their ultimate redemption. It's just hard to imagine how the God of the universe can come into a person's life and not have the power to make his presence known through the living of our life. It doesn't sound like the God of the Bible to me. And something else. It doesn't sound like the salvation of the Bible either. When the God of the universe invades your life, His power and His holiness are so manifest, it starts coming out of your life. And yet that poses a problem for a lot of people that are in this room this morning. Because there's no visible evidence. Let me ask you, other than the people in... <laughs> knowing that every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, your car leaves your driveway and comes to this building and you park yourself here. What visible evidence is there in your life? Child of God. They're trying to kill me without this water, aren't they? <laughs> Come over to the book of Second Timothy. Now, in just a second, they're going to be, they're going to be bringing this water to me. I just know they are because... Three other people just left the room to make sure that the pastor doesn't croak up there. <clears throat> but now listen, they're going to be bringing this water. Please, here it comes. Don't let this... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm such a wimp. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my voice if we don't do that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. <laughs> oh... All right, I'm good for about another three hours now, y'all. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day to you. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 19. This is sobering, man. Paul says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Listen to it now. Having this... What? The Lord knoweth them that are His. And we've already seen this morning, in the tribulation period, He's going to start off the whole shebang by marking those that are His with a seal in their, in their foreheads. And listen, He's going to know in the tribulation... Those that are His. But listen, what the verse says is that there's a seal that God uses right now in the church age to let Him know them that are His. And it's just as sure as the foundation of God Himself. And that is, the rest of the verse says, that everyone that nameth the name of Christ departeth from iniquity. Now listen, that doesn't mean that everyone who genuinely knows the Lord is going to be sinlessly perfect. What it means is that in those who have in the church age the seal of the living God, there is going to be a continuous, lifelong process of departing from iniquity. 
And the problem that poses for a lot of you is you got saved and you had a real big shebang and you were real excited about all of that. And yet not much has changed in your life. It's not been marked as a life that's departing from iniquity. And what he says here is there's going to be a continuous, lifelong process of departing from iniquity. And again, the opposite is true. If sin continues to be the norm in your life, you better, you better be sure you're really His because the Lord knows them that are His and it's those whose lives have been marked by the continuing process of departing from sin. It's the same thing that Paul was saying over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Listen to it. He says, follow holiness. You know what that is? It's the positive side of the negative that he just told you back in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19. Over there he says, depart from iniquity. What he's telling you here now is the positive side of that. Follow holiness. Listen to the rest of it now without which no man shall see the Lord. Do you need me to break that down for you? Where there's no holiness, it's evidence that you don't know the Lord. Follow holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And now, make sure you hear this. The point isn't you working your way to heaven by doing all of these holy things. It isn't you earning your salvation. The, the, the point the writer of the Hebrews is making is, if you've got genuine biblical salvation that comes about as Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says by grace through faith if you've got genuine salvation which Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says comes not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saves us if you've genuinely got that kind of salvation that comes through grace and mercy what the scripture is saying is that the saving grace that plants the Holy Spirit of God in you is powerful enough to get you to depart from iniquity and to desire holiness in your life. It's just that simple. In fact, cruise over to Titus chapter 3 for a minute. Titus chapter 3. In verse 5, I just quoted this one. Get the flow from verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us 
abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, not because we were doing all kind of good things. We weren't doing any good things. It wasn't our works of righteousness. It was His work of righteousness that He did on the cross. It was done through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified, here it is, by His grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Make no bones about it, folks. You can't do anything to get this salvation other than come and say, I can't, I know I can't do anything to get this salvation. So would you please, by your grace and mercy, give it to me? Bam! That's what he does. But, for all of those who have received that incredible grace and mercy for salvation, look at verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly and, and that's why I'm preaching on this simple little thing from the 144,000 this morning because the scripture tells me that as a minister of the gospel I am to make sure that I affirm this constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful now that they have to maintain good works your good works can't save you, but once the work of grace has saved you, if your faith doesn't cause you to work, you didn't get it. Affirm that constantly. Make sure they understand that if they've got the genuine deal, it's going to come out through good works. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And men, I'm trying to get you out of here before your roast burns. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I'm also trying to make sure that everybody in here doesn't end up burning before it's all said and done. And I'm just telling you, I'm affirming this constantly because some of y'all need to really just look and, and see what's up. Because the good works that follow the work of God and salvation that comes by grace through faith and not by works of righteousness we have done it's not real visible Ephesians 2 8 and 9 and man we love to quote this for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God not of works bang lest any man should boast and man we know that verse 10 for we are his workmanship. Check it out. Now listen, listen. You can't work your way to salvation. But once God saved you, you become his work. His workmanship. L look at it. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Listen, if he saved you, the reason he saved you is so that you could begin to do good works so that it would come out and it would be visible in your life. Look at the rest of it. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And I am submitting to you this morning that if in your life you do not see the workmanship of God that's causing you to depart from iniquity and to follow holiness and you don't see the good works flowing out of your life I'm, I'm not trying to tick you off 
I'm trying to shake you. I'm trying to rattle you this morning. Because listen, some of y'all have fear. The rapture is going to take place, this event that we've been talking about week after week. And some of you are going to be sitting here after it's all said and done. Go over to 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, look at verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And now listen, for 88 weeks in this church, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we come in here in the book of Revelation, and we're talking about that time. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to come. He's coming in the clouds. He's going to come to this earth. And week after week, we just keep pounding that. 88 weeks. And some of you sit here through all of it. And, yep. Did you get that? What, what, what's the blank on that one? And we're filling in our study sheet. Look at verse 3. And... Count them now. Every man. And every man that hath this hope in him. What hope? The hope that Jesus is coming. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You know what? The result of this study of the book of Revelation, what it ought to be doing if you genuinely know God, is it's causing you to purify your life. And yet some of you love the study of the book of Revelation and you stay away on Sunday night like crazy because Pastor Frank is in the book of Judges. It's just hammering, hammering, hammering the fact of our life. And you can't deal with Sunday night because you just want to learn about the fact that he's coming again. And I'm telling you, he's coming again and there's no evidence that he's going to take you because you don't purify your life. Oh, you, you got to come on Sunday night to be saved? Uh-uh. You got to purify your life, though. Not to get you saved. It's just the evidence of everyone who is saved. You see, we make this grave error in the church age. Because... Once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God and you're sealed with the Spirit of God, which is eternal security. And we make no bones about that. Once you're in Christ, buddy, and if it was genuine when you called upon the name of the Lord, you couldn't get out if you wanted to get out. If you want to get out, it's evidence you weren't sealed, okay? Don't make this tough. If there's no change in your life, it's evidence you didn't get sealed. Okay, that's the whole point of what we're saying here is a lot of you are banking on the eternal security of the believer because it's taught in the Bible. It's taught in the Bible for those who can look at their life and see a visible evidence that the life has changed. And because of the eternal security of the believer, you know what it causes us to do? Not obey the Bible. It causes us not to obey 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Cruise over there. 
Just a nice little Mother's Day message. Okay, book of 2 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth. And, of course, the church is comprised of true believers in Jesus Christ, right? So, writing to the church, which is at Corinth, writing to true believers in Jesus Christ, or at least those who profess to be so, look at the command of verse 5. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Now you see, as Baptists, we are notorious for talking about a time and a place where we prayed a prayer. And we go back to that. When anybody asks us whether or not we're saved, you know what we do? We take them back to the time and place where we prayed the prayer. I, I, I don't want to be mean-spirited. Find that in that book. Find where God tells you you get the, the assurance of your salvation by going back to a time and a place where you prayed a prayer. Now listen real carefully before you go out and say that I'm a heretic, all right? Listen. When you get saved, it happens. It's not a process. There comes a time. And obviously, if there's a time, there had to be a place. And you come into this thing confessing that you're a sinner and confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So it comes through a prayer. Okay? It's all there. What I'm saying to you is the Bible never takes you back to the time and the place where you prayed the prayer to get the, key word, assurance of your salvation. The assurance of your salvation comes through the evidence of its outworking in your life. Because everybody that got saved became the workmanship of God, and I'm telling you, he's big enough to do the job in you. And if he wasn't big enough to do the job in you, it's because he ain't in you. We got a book sitting in our Bible. You know why it's sitting in our Bible? It's sitting there to give us the assurance of our salvation. It's the book of 1 John. Cruise there real quick. Anybody's roast getting ready to be done? All right, we're really hurrying. Ooh, we're hurrying. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And boy, we're notorious for taking this one out of context also. We lead somebody to Christ, and first thing we're going to do, take them over to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, give them the assurance of their salvation, because it says right here, brother, these things have I written unto you, believe on the name of the Son of God. Did you just believe on the name of the Son of God? Look at what it says here that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you just believe on the name of Son? Okay, you can know that you got eternal life. We teach that trash. I mean, we do. In First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, we teach that trash. You know why it's trash? Because at that point, nobody but God knows whether or not he really got it. 
Listen. These things that he's written that believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, there needs to come that time and that place where you call upon the name of the Lord. But to these things that he's written so that we can know that we have eternal life is 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4, and everything that he said up to verse 13. And he comes to verse 13 he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know. Because you see, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, it tells us to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. And so that we didn't run back to a time and a place where we prayed a prayer, what God does, he put a whole book in the Bible to tell you. Here's how you can know whether or not you got the genuine deal. You see how simple this is? I mean, it's not real tough. Okay, so how are you going to know whether or not you got the genuine deal? Well, let's just real quick. Let me just give you what the book of 1 John tells you is the way that you're going to know. You know how you're going to know, first of all? By how you obey the Bible. Look in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know Him. Here's how you can have the assurance that you really are a child of God. Don't go back to the time and place where you prayed a prayer. Here's how He'll know if we keep his commandments he that saith I know him brother and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected hereby know we that we are in him he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. You're going to follow holiness. You're going to depart from iniquity because he is holy. And you're going to purify yourself even as he is pure. We ought to walk even as he walked. And he says, and if you're not walking, moving toward Christ's likeness, he says, John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not Mark Trotter at First Baptist New Philadelphia, he says, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. Look in chapter 3, verse 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. You see, that Spirit is the seal of the living God. And when he marks that seal on you, things start happening in your life. And you know what? For the first time in your life, you have the power to obey the commandments of God. You've got the desire in there because the God of the universe is in you. And he's given you that desire. And where there's no desire, and when it's not being lived out, he says, you ain't got it. But not only does the book of 1 John tell you that you can know that you're saved by how you obey. It also tells you you can know that you're saved by how you love. Look, look in chapter 4. And verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. And what he begins to tell us right here is that here is another evidence. Here's how you can have the assurance of your salvation. Here's how you can know you're going you're gonna to love. First of all, you're going to 
You're going to love God. Look at verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. That's how you'll know you love God. And Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So we're back to obedience again. Okay? But if you know God this morning, one thing's true of you. You love him. If you know God, you love God. And, and look at chapter 4 and verse 11. We also love our brothers. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Drop down to verse 20. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. And go back to chapter 2 and verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. And a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and him in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's an occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. We love God when we know him. How do you have the assurance of your salvation? You look at your life and you begin to see, is there a pattern of obedience? You look at your life and say, is my life characterized by love? Do I love God and do I love my brothers? Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 35, listen to it. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. And listen, if you're a true child of God, God marks that on your life with a seal. And it's evident to everybody. And that seal is the seal of love. That's the evidence of the working of God in your life is you have love in an uncanny way. Other people who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when you hate your brother, God says, you, you, better, you better look because the one way you're going to know that you have the assurance of your salvation is by that love. And then there's a third way that that love manifests itself and it's in not loving the world. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, love of the Father is not any. Now, don't get removed. Now, listen, then. don't get removed from why we're looking at all these. Chapter 5 and verse 13 told us the purpose of this book being in the Bible was so that we could have the assurance of our salvation, so that we could know that. And what I've done is I've given you a quick little overview. Here's how God says it's going to be made visible in your life. By your obedience. A desire for you to walk even as he walked. For you to keep the commandments that God put in his book. Again, not sinless perfection, but your life ought to be characterized and marked by the fact that you have obedience to God that manifests itself in how you live your life. Secondly, in how you love. You're going to love God, and you'll know that you love God because you love your brothers, and you don't love God the world. And when God says, when you violate those things in your life, 
no matter what you say, no matter what you profess, no matter what meeting you attended, no matter what word you said, no matter what card you signed, if you know God, it'll be lived out in your life. You say, well, what about, what about the Corinthians? I mean, that was, that was a sick group of people. You know what? It was a sick group of people. Disobedient to God. And you know what? That group of people could not have had the assurance of the salvation. They might have genuinely been saved. You could have never gone to the Bible and never proved it. Listen, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just telling you, that based on what the Bible says, you can't go to the Bible without a changed life and get any verification that you know Him. And, and I want to say this in this context. As a child of God, God puts that desire in us to obey and, and to love. We do have the ability to violate that and to disobey and not to love. When we do, though, we don't love that. We're going to fail. And when we do, we'll have a Romans 7 response. We'll hate that. And we'll cry out to God and say, God, I don't want to live like that. That's not characteristic of people that know you. And you know what? If you violate that one, you know what the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says? You'll receive chastening in your life because he chastens every child of God, every son and daughter of God. If you live in violation to what he said is going to be true of your life, you will be chastened. He's going to bring you back to a place of obedience. And the thing that is so scary is seeing people who, because they went back to a time and a place where they prayed a prayer, there's no evidence in their life. There is no apparent conviction of the Spirit of God in their life. And what's more, if there is the conviction of the Spirit of God and they violate it, there's no evidence of chasing in their life. They just cruise on through life thinking they're saved. And I'm just telling you, if I'm describing your life, please, <laughs> no, no, listen. I'm not going to get any brownie points because you get saved. I'm not going to get paid anymore if anybody gets saved here today. The issue is we're living in the last days, y'all. And the things that are so scary is some of you guys that have been around here forever. And it's just not evident in your life. And I'm asking you, is the Spirit of God convicting you of that? And if He's convicting you, do you see the chastening hand of God in your life? And if you don't, come on, don't run past what you're hearing from the Word of God today. Get saved, genuinely. I don't care, I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care if everybody in this church thinks you're saved. I don't care if you're a deacon. I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter, man. Humble yourself before God. 
examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, and use the standard that God gave to us, the book of First John, to see whether or not you got the real deal. All of God's genuine servants are marked with a seal. It's true in the 144,000 in the tribulation. It's true in the church age which, with everyone who has received the seal of the Spirit of the living God. Nobody looking around, everybody just bow your head for just a sec. Listen, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask you to to do anything. There's not going to be any tricks played, anything like that. I'm just asking you, as we went through this today, is it evident by the life that you live that you have received the seal that God gives in the church age, the seal of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Spirit of the living God begins to go to work, not in writing something on your head, but writing it all over your life. Do you have absolute, total confidence this morning that you're a child of God, marked with His seal? Before you sweep all this under the rug and just say, okay, this will go away as soon as the service is over. Why not just respond to God today and nail this thing down? Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room this morning. If you're a guest and maybe this is the first time you've ever walked into this room, maybe you've been coming over the last several weeks or months, or maybe you're somebody who's been here for the last five years, 10 years, 15, 20, or 50 years. Before you go back and just get into the flow of life, would you deal with God today and just simply cry out to God and say, God, I went through some kind of theatrics somewhere at some point in time, but it's obvious by my life that the Spirit of God is not in me. And oh God, I, I hate that we, we race that clock. And right now, would you please, in people that don't know you, would you please just stop that clock in their minds and help them not to even see past anything other than what you're doing in, in their hearts right now. I pray that there would be no true child of God here today that would begin to wrestle with their salvation. I pray that for those that are here that have not been wrestling with their salvation but have never genuinely possessed it, I pray that in them today you would speak 
speak to their heart. You would allow them to humble themselves. I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. Oh God, please do your work right now. and Please do not let anything that will take place as the service is, is coming to a conclusion. Don't let anything distract them from doing what they need to do in responding to the invitation today to come to the front and talk to one of our pastors today. Please do your work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.